The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. As we kick off a fresh trading week, I'm Jeff Cutmore with Karen Cho in the London studio. And Steve is down in Westminster. And here are your headlines. A deal derailed. Twitter vows to take Elon Musk to court as the Tesla boss attempts to terminate his $44 billion acquisition of the social media company. Meanwhile, the race to replace Boris Johnson kicks into high gear as Tory contenders jostle for position, whilst one of the early favourites, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, bows out. German utility giant Uniper submits the ballot application that we've been waiting for amid heightened fears over energy security in Europe, while French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire tells CNBC the bloc must take precautions. It will take months. Um, it won't be uh, an operation that uh, will be um, fulfilled in uh, days or weeks. It will take months. So I will provide all uh, the necessary precisions in the coming weeks, but not right now. You said that the most probable scenario is that Russia will cut gas altogether to Europe. Is that the most the, the, the option that you're working on now, the, your baseline scenario? I think that this is one of the key scenarios and we have to be prepared to all options. You know, that's the responsibility of uh, all uh, politicians to take into account the geopolitical situation. We have to take into account that uh, cutting gas from Russia is one of the key options. And Japan's ruling coalition increases its majority in an upper house election two days after the fatal shooting of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Elon Musk wants to back out of his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter, just under three months on from launching his bid for the social media platform. The billionaire's legal team filed a letter with the SEC late Friday, claiming that Twitter has failed to comply with obligations of the merger agreement, particularly around its daily active users and spam account information. You may recall that the Twitter chairman, Brett Taylor, responded to the letter saying the company is entitled to closing the deal at the agreed price and would launch legal action in order to enforce the merger agreement. Shares of Twitter fell almost 5% in extended trade after the letter became public. Well, I spoke to Twitter chairman Brett Taylor back in mid-June at VivaTech and I'd actually directly asked him whether this one was going to end up in the courts and I also asked him about any concerns he had about the deal. Let's take a listen. It's not appropriate for me to comment too much publicly beyond, beyond what we've said in our proxy statement. But first I'll tell you, Twitter has never been more relevant. This platform for public conversation, whether it's geopolitical issues, entertainment, culture, technology and innovation, it's all happening on Twitter. And I think that's more relevant now than it's ever been. And beyond what we said in the proxy, I can just repeat that the board is committed to the transaction or agreed upon terms. But has it stalled? Uh, as I said, I can't say beyond our public statements and we're committed to the transaction on the agreed upon terms. 
Musk launched his bid for Twitter back in April, the 14th of April, issuing a best and final offer of just over $50 per share. A week after that, he disclosed a 9% stake in the company. And Twitter's board overwhelmingly backed a poison pill strategy the next day in a bid to fend off the hostile takeover. But in an about turn, investors backed the deal in late April. An SEC filing revealed that either side would have to pay the other a $1 billion breakup fee in the event the deal was not concluded. Musk started to question Twitter's figures for active daily users in mid-May, saying the number of spam accounts on the platform is far higher than the company claims. The Tesla CEO said the deal could not move forward without more information and he threatened to walk away in early June before formally terminating the deal late Friday. So it's been eventful as we take a look at this timeline and clearly what's illustrated here, the events that have played out uh, through the lens of Musk and Twitter. But in the backdrop of this same timeline has been tumultuous time for markets with the Nasdaq and big momentum stocks, uh, Fang Plus stocks, all reversing course over that time and it's put even more pressure on Musk. And Jeff, here we are where we now have uh, this uh, point where Musk wants to effectively exit from the deal. So uh, whether the courts can settle this one is uh, really the next stage. Oh, absolutely. And I think we've sat around this desk and there's been a, a lot of uh, scepticism that this deal would actually ever get done. The interesting question at this point is really who benefits from the outcome of this uh, current uh, disagreement over whether Musk is actually going to buy the business. We know the lawyers will probably do quite well out of it, but it doesn't look as though necessarily Twitter shareholders are going to do OK. And Clearly, there is the risk here that uh, Elon Musk has to pay the severance payment, uh, which won't be great for him, Karen. Um, the, the other thing is, are there any other um, platforms out there that could benefit potentially from distress involving Twitter? Well, probably not really. And that's the peculiarity of Twitter and the Twitter business story that even as you look at TikTok or Instagram, these are not the same people who are on the Twitter platform necessarily, mm. who are on TikTok, who are on Instagram. And, and as we've discussed, I think, ever since Twitter came into being, wonderful, wonderful product. We all enjoy being on it. Terrible business. We know that there are ambitions from Musk to have a, a social media platform in his stable. And the question is whether he's got information now that he's seen through the lens of Twitter that could help assist in creating a platform from scratch. I mean, clearly this one was going to be done at the wrong price. So we saw all the wriggling and manoeuvres to try and get out of the deal effectively. And even some of the agreements put forward or, or some of the reasons put forward on Friday evening by Musk when he uh, effectively uh, reversed course here. He was talking about the uh, lack of data or data withhold from him to verify facts around accounts. I mean, what we heard in recent weeks from Twitter again was a fire hose of data that had been handed over to Musk. Twitter claimed that it had presented that information and a lot of it. Uh, the other big one was really around um, the, the running of the business. Uh, Musk was saying he argued the company was making critical changes to the ordinary running of the business without his consent, such as imposing a hiring freeze and layoffs. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago when Musk was before 
some of those same workers and he was talking about a hiring freeze and job cuts of up to 10% of staff over at Tesla because he had a super bad feeling at the company. So he was talking about recessionary conditions and a change effectively at his own business. And uh, he had lots of questions too that he was feeling from employees over at Twitter saying, well, what's going to happen here? Because the writing's on the wall, I think, for tech companies that have had a growth strategy and now have had to trim that growth strategy. Yeah, so uh, just one more twist in the uh, extraordinary story that is Elon Musk effectively here, but just walking through those options to make sure we're all very clear. Um, Musk gets to walk away. Twitter, don't go after him. Um, and he gets away scot-free. Doesn't look likely, does it? Because the lawyers have just been hired. So um, they could negotiate a lower price. That would lead to what? Class action lawsuits against the Twitter management team from those Twitter shareholders who think they're going to uh, get the higher price paid. Elon Musk pays the billion dollars, which would be the breakup uh, fee at this point. Or finally, um, the court orders Musk to go through at the current price. Which of those seems most likely at this point? The one billion seems the cleanest option, doesn't almost, it? doesn't it? Which yeah. is extraordinary as we talk about such a huge amount of money here. But, I mean, what other option do you have? Well, we just mentioned the timeline here, the U-turn. Uh, the Twitter board did a U-turn about uh, pushing forward with this deal because the price, looked at the price, went, this is a fantastic deal, let's get it done. And uh, they could clearly see that the mood was changing and that valuations were becoming unstuck. And if you've got a willing buyer there at a certain price, despite some concerns you may have about whether he's the most suitable person to run the business, you just put all that aside because the price is right. A renegotiated price that's lower brings back all of those concerns, doesn't it? Certainly does. Um, we're going to talk some more about this with uh, Richard Windsor. He's always got a good line on the story. He'll be with us at 9.30 Central European time and hopefully he'll give us some guidance on how you might be able to make some money off this story. Well, 11 contenders have now come forward in the race to replace the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Former Chancellor Rishi Sunak is leading the field with more than 25 endorsements so far from his fellow MPs. The influential committee of Conservative backbench MPs is due to decide a timetable for the leadership vote this evening, with the number of candidates expected to be whittled down to two before Parliament breaks for summer recess next Friday. Tory party members will then vote for a winner. Steve is down at Westminster. And Steve, your crystal ball was working very well when it came to the Twitter deal and whether this would be a clean deal with Elon Musk. You always said it was going to be problematic. So give your crystal ball a rub as we look at this story with the UK government. Which of these Tory candidates do you think is putting up the best performance? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say what I said on Thursday, post Boris Johnson. I'm going to say what I said on Friday as well. And I'm not going to go there, Jeff, because it's just too early days. A lot of people were talking about Ben Wallace on Friday as well. And, and just it's just so early. You've got to go look at history and have a look at any of the history of these events. I mean, I've been studying them perhaps um, more than most since uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, it's just too early days. You mentioned the 1922 committee is going to lay out the timeline. Well, the 1922 committee is also going to lay out more strenuous rules, we think, of how to get to the starting line. Uh, 11, 12 names, and we can go through one or two of them if you like as well. It basically pretty much uh, falls into the category of uh, Remainer, Brexiteer, Tax Cutter, Tax uh, 
hiker in the short term as well, uh, part of the established government or, or actually a new face as well. And we can, we can go through some of those scenarios. But the fact of the matter is, not all of these 11 or 12 are going to get even to the starting line because the rules for the last election where you had to get eight MPs to back you, well, this time round, the 1922 committee, which also is going to have a new executive in place by the time these rules are enacted upon as well, and they're going to probably vote on that one tonight as well. And the anti-Boris Johnson camp think they're going to get uh, a lot of names onto that 1922 executive committee. They are potentially going to make much more strenuous rules to even get to the starting line. So as I say, it was eight members of parliament uh, to get your name on the first ballot last time round. It could be as, much, as many as 10% of the parliamentary party, which will take you up to well over 30 MPs needed to endorse you as well. Now, in the in the aim of actually keeping it widespread, maybe it won't be that strenuous, but we're hearing numbers of between 20 to 25, as I say, maybe even as much as 10% to get to the starting line. And you're going to see it whittled down uh, stunningly quickly as well from there on in as well. All the usual candidates, I mean, even those who haven't gone forward yet, Pretty Patel, she hasn't officially said she's in the race yet, but it's un- inconceivable that the Home Secretary uh, won't have a, a little run at this one as well. Lives Trust talking over the weekend as well. I know our sister channel, Sky has been talking to Nadim Zahawi as well. And there's a lot of dirty tricks people are talking about as well, about dirty dossiers going to opposition parties, being fed to the press of them again. So the smear campaigns within the Tory party for other candidates, uh, they seem to be there left, right and centre as well. But I mean, yeah, look, at the moment we have 11, maybe 12 names. One of the points you've got to remember is not everyone thinks when they put their name forward, they're going to get to the ballot or even get to the final two. They may say they think they are. They may say they think they're the best candidate. But but the truth of the matter is they just want to get themselves in the frame, A, to give themselves a bit of experience of one of these leadership runs, and B, of course, because they want to be in the cabinet. They want to say, look, I'm a big player. I want to get in the cabinet uh, and I want a place at the table. And possibly then my votes that are coming backing me, I can potentially put them towards you if you offer me a cabinet space. So there's a lot of that going on as well. I want to look at history as well, because as I say, I looked at a lot of these campaigns over the years and uh, I'm just recalling that the early favourites very rarely win. So, for instance, who was the early favourite in 2016? Was it Andrew Leadsom or was it Theresa May? No, I'm talking about the early favourite. It was Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson was backed by Michael Gove. Michael Gove pulled his backing from uh, Boris Johnson and then ran himself the so-called stab in the back. There's a lot of that being talked about with Treasury this time around, uh, with the Johnsonites talking about Rishi Sunak as well. So Boris Johnson didn't even get on the ballot in 2016 because of shenanigans within the party. Uh, We go back to uh, 1990, the one we talked about a lot in the previous days as well. Michael Heseltine was seen as the natural shoo-in. A popular vote didn't get in. Uh, John Major became the Prime Minister for seven years as well. Ken Clark, and I was just looking back, Ken Clark tried uh, in 1997, 2001, 2005, uh, and every time, very popular man within the party, former leader of the House, huge number of uh, key roles, including Home Secretary and Chancellor of Exchequer, didn't get to become Prime Minister or the leader of the Conservative Party on any of those occasions as well. Um, Michael Portillo, 2001, uh, he got a huge percentage of the vote in the early rounds, but then didn't become uh, the leader of the Conservative Party. That was Ian Duncan Smith, a man who many people thought was inconceivable when the first round. He only got 23.5%, Portillo got 295 So the reason why I'm so reticent to give you early names of who I think are the early runners and riders are clearly because... 
I've looked back at, and the early runners and riders, whether it's Portillo, whether it's Hesseltine, whether it's Clark, whether it's on one occasion Boris Johnson himself, they don't necessarily come through uh, and finish with their nose ahead of the pack as well. Clearly, the one they're all going after at the moment is Rishi Sunak. You mentioned earlier on, he's got the early backing. I've seen he's got over 30 seats backing as well. But they're all after him on tax at the moment as well. And very interesting that he's hit back at a lot of the rivals who are offering immediate tax cuts, uh, no national insurance increases, no corporation tax rise as well, fuel tax cuts as well. Uh, he's calling a lot of that fairly, fairyland economics. And quite frankly, I would like to see how some of those candidates are funding some of those tax cuts as well, because the finances, all right, with a bit of inflation, they're looking a bit better in terms of a debt to GDP level, but they're still not are, are in fine fettle just yet as well. So just like I said at the tail end of last week uh, with Ben Wallace, I refuse to get involved in, at this stage, uh, who looks the favourite, because I don't know if anyone is. Karen? Very wide field, though, isn't it? And thanks for running us through the latest there, Steve. Uh, let's push on to politics in Japan, as the ruling coalition is set to secure a firm majority of seats in the country's upper house elections. According to exit polls by state broadcaster NHK, the Liberal Democratic Party and its junior coalition partner, Komitu, are expected uh, projected to win between 69 and 83 of the 125 seats. Japan's election took place following the assassination of former leader Shinzo Abe. Abe, who was the country's longest-serving prime minister, was shot dead during a campaign speech in Nara on Friday. The attack has been described by officials and local newspapers as an attack on democracy. The country's current leader, Fumio Kishida, said the party's projected victory in the election was significant. Kishida-san is talking as we speak. He's holding a press conference in Tokyo. Just a couple of quick lines from what we've seen so far. The Japanese Prime Minister says, I will take up difficult problems former Prime Minister Abe was not able to achieve, including revising the constitution. He says we will take every possible step to deal with rising prices says to make a flexible use of 5.5 trillion yen of budget reserve for dealing with price hikes, so touching it on inflation here. We should be able to provide sufficient stable energy supplies all summer, so uh, reinforcing uh, the situation when it comes to energy security. And uh, Kashida says the government will swiftly implement targeted steps to combat rising food. Energy prices will create an atmosphere for private sector firms to raise, to raise wages more easily. And he says I will this week uh, meet uh, to kick off discussions on the steps to cushion the blow from rising fuel food prices. And I think you're hearing a couple of uh, different lines there where he keeps revisiting food and fuel prices. So clearly a priority at this stage, uh, the cost of living crisis, Jeff. So does spending five and a half trillion yen to ease inflation ease inflation? Depends or does it fuel inflation? Price. Well, exactly. It depends how targeted it is mm. and where that goes to, if it's targeting demand or supply side dynamics here. Uh, still to come on the programme, utility group Uniper asks the German state for a bailout, warning reduced gas flows and surging prices will lead to significant losses. We'll talk about that when we come back.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. The French government is insisting the nationalisation of utility giant EDF will not lead to a surge in household electricity bills. This is the state prepares to take on full ownership of the higher indebted company. The government announced last week it would take on the remaining 16% stake it does not yet own as it looks to prop up the firm's finances and accelerate investment into its nuclear energy strategy. Well, speaking to Charlotte and Nexon Provence, French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire told CNBC that the nationalisation process will take several months. It will take months. Um, it won't be a, an operation that uh, will be um, fulfilled in uh, days or weeks. It will take months. So I will provide all uh, the necessary precisions in the coming weeks, but not right now. You said that the most probable scenario is that Russia will cut gas altogether to Europe. Is that the most the, the, the option that you're working on now, the, your baseline scenario? I think that this is one of the key scenarios, and we have to be prepared to all options. You know, that's the responsibility of uh, all uh, politicians to take into account the geopolitical situation. We have to take into account that um, cutting gas from Russia is one of the key options. The Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline, which carries gas from Russia to Germany, will undergo 10 days of routine maintenance work starting today. But officials in Germany and Europe are concerned that Russia could keep the pipeline shut for a longer period in retaliation in West, uh, to Western sanctions uh, due to the war in Ukraine. Russia has already cut flows via Nord Stream 2 by 40%, citing the delay of a serviced uh, equipment item being returned by Siemens Energy in Canada over the weekend. The Canadian government granted an exemption to its sanctions package, allowing uh, repaired pipeline turbines to be shipped to Russia. President Vladimir Putin is warning Europe's sanctions package is doing more damage to Europe than to Russia and that surging gas costs will lead to, quote, catastrophic consequences for the energy market. We know the Europeans are trying to replace Russian energy resources, but the result of such actions is what's expected. This is an increase in gas prices in the spot market and an increase in the cost of energy resources for end consumers, including households. All this, once again, shows that sanctions, restrictions against Russia cause much more damage to precisely those countries that impose them. Further use of this sanctions policy can lead to even more severe, without exaggeration, even catastrophic consequences in the global energy market. Juniper has asked the German government for a bailout with CEO Klaus-Dieter Malbeck uh, warning the company could face losses of up to 10 billion euros this year. The utility group has been forced to turn to the spot market to fulfil its contracts 
following a sharp drop-off in Russian gas deliveries. Well, spot gas prices in Europe have surged almost 150% since the turn of the year. Uniper's CEO says German citizens and German industry must brace itself for notably higher energy prices running into next year. The big wave, the price increase wave, will only be ahead for customers. Many of those customers see the high prices that we have in trade markets. They don't even see them yet on their invoices, on their bills. And this is why it is correct that the Federal Grid Agency and the minister and everyone else call upon all citizens, all industries, companies, etc. and point out how difficult the situation is. An enormous wave, an enormous increase will happen, will what German consumers can expect. Well, let's get out to Aneta, who's covering this story for us this week. And Aneta, of course, I've hot-footed it back to the UK from my uh, week in uh, Germany last week, uh, talking about this um, and the passage of legislation to make this happen. But it seems that the snag could actually be in the negotiations with the Finnish government. Tell us a little bit more about whether there is likely to be an early support scheme for this business. Yes, that's completely right, Jeff. I mean, you're an expert on the story now as well, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, but 80% of Unipra are held by the Finnish-owned utility Fortum, but there seems to be movement now. What we're hearing out of Finland is that they're willing to let go the German business, um, meaning that they might be willing to just give it away to the German government, and that could be a solution to find a bailout solution. I've been talking to lawyers um, who were telling me that this is essentially the problem because Germany cannot bail out the Finnish state, but if the Finnish state gives up its stake in the German uh, German business of the utility, then uh, the bailout can probably be easily designed. So currently what's happening is that lawyers and advisors are working on that deal to find a solution for the German business of Uniper. We have been hearing from the CEO of Uniper that the company is burning some um, yeah, 300 to 30 to 40 million euro uh, cash each day because of the situation on the gas market. They have to uh, buy gas on the spot market and deliver, deliver to their clients. And that's the huge price gap they're facing. Um, and that is the problem right now. So what, as I was saying, what is happening right now is that that deal, which is currently designed um, by advisors in the German government, um, but there will be a bailout at some point in time, probably not this week, but next week might be the time we are looking at. Um, the situation is not getting better, and that is what is worrisome to the German government as well. We have also been hearing that as of now, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline is closed for maintenance. That's the official reason, of course. Um, but the big concern is what happens after the 21st of July, because that is the day uh, when the maintenance work should stop. And if uh, gas supply will not resume to a, a much higher level than we are currently witnessing, um, there might be a huge problem when it comes to gas supply for the next winter for Germany. And that is, of course, a major concern for the German government. And for now, we, we 
it's just no visibility whether gas supplies will resume to a higher level or whether they will stop altogether. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.